Well, I wanna uh, share this morning uh, and continue in the vein of prayer um, and, and chat about that. You know, we've been talking about our core values at New Life City. Uh, the presence of God is number one. We love the presence of God. We wanna engage God's presence. We love the power of prayer. We love transformation, which is uh, through deliverance and sanctification. We also love the ability to evangelize because this is the almost too good to be true news. And so we gotta tell people about Jesus. When you understand what Jesus really has done for you and what he can do for others, you share his gift. You share the gift of the gospel. And so um, we're gonna talk about that later in the year about evangelism and, and transformation. But we wanna camp a little bit more on prayer. I think that you know sometimes we feel like it's such a simple topic and in a lot of ways it really is because you don't need some special uh, uh, training or certificate to pray to God. You need a willing heart, faith that he's actually listening to you and experiencing him. And when we really uh, magnify our prayer life, when we focus on our prayer life, there's a strength that starts to become building up in us and, and it's probably one of the first things that starts to atrophy in a Christian's life is their prayer life. And oftentimes it ebbs and flows through circumstances. It's not, not usually a malicious intent. It's not usually because you're upset about you know, uh, something. It's usually because you're busy and you're distracted. We, excuse me, because I'm right in there with, with all of us. And the enemy, I think, is uh, one of his strategies is to try to make you as busy and as distracted as possible so that you always find that your last option is prayer. And sometimes our, last, our, our prayer life exists only in the realm of, of difficult circumstances and tragedy. I've noticed this in my life. I'm like, oh my goodness, I haven't realized that the lack of prayer until I started praying again because I was in such a need. Have you ever been in such a need? You start increasing your prayer life, you start seeking God so much more, and, you're, and then you realize, why haven't I been doing this for the past six months? You know, Because the enemy really tries to get you off your center, tries to get you out of uh, uh, this life of prayer. And so I wanna uh, talk about how prayer is important. Um, uh, Max Lucado uh, has this quote here. It says, our prayers may be awkward. Our attempts may be feeble. But since the power of our prayers is in the one who hears it and not in the one who says it, our prayers do make a difference. This is so important. You know, our, our, we, we do not need to be eloquent with our speech. We do not need to have some sort of uh, uh, formula in our prayer life for God to hear us. All we need is God. And so uh, when we often start out in our prayer life, I, I don't know, I think that sometimes we end up getting a, a little bit too somber and too serious. Because we know that God is a, he's a personal God. He's not just some corporate God. He's a personal God who wants to have a personal relationship with you and a personal connection with you. And, uh, and he's right here with you. He doesn't left you or forsake you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive the spirit of Christ. You are temples of the Holy Spirit. God is with you and he's not forsaken you. But oftentimes we, we ignore him and not get him involved in our life. And, and when our prayer life starts, our prayer life can often be uh, really dismal, it might be weak, it might be like uh, uh, really uh, somber and serious because sometimes in our mind, our religious context is that God will only take a serious person. And you know, sometimes our, our, uh, our prayer life is, is, is kind of depressing. I, I have a, a friend in Pennsylvania 
um, that I, I would talk to often. He's a great friend, and uh, he was going through difficult seasons in his life, and uh, every time I would meet with him, he would um, tell me all the horrible things and that was going on, and he would never see the positive or the possibility of God having breakthrough in his life. He was in a stage in his life where, you know, I don't know if you guys ever watched Winnie the Pooh. He was Eeyore. You know, you're like, well, you know, this might be a great opportunity. No, it's not. Well, maybe this will happen. I can't see that happening. It was like a drain. I was like, I would get fatigued just, just and he's my friend. I wasn't meeting with him because I was his pastor or counselor or any type of thing. I was just his friend. And I would come home and I'd say, Ruth, I can only take like one hour of this guy because he only could tell me the negative. And I think that when we think about God, we think, oh, we need to tell him all of our requests, all of our needs, all of our desires, and, we, um, and, and, and all the tragedies. It's like God, like we, we forget to tell God about the good stuff. Telling him all, all the things that are wrong. Obviously, he does know uh, what's good and bad, but, but because of relationship, we need to just not, there's a, Benny, uh, Benny Johnson wrote a book called The Happy Intercessor. And it just talks about how uh, uh, engaging God with a, a joyful heart. How many know that in his presence is the fullness of joy? It's in Psalms. When you're in his presence, joy should fill your heart. So I tell God, yes, I do tell him what's wrong. I do tell him what I need breakthrough in. I do tell him what I'm struggling with. I do talk to him in that way. I also listen. Remember, prayer is not just about talking and, sh and spouting off requests. It's not a suggestion box please do this, please do this, please this. But it's a full communication. So prayer is not just speaking, it's what? Listening. It's hearing what he's saying. And so uh, I tell God what I'm thankful for. I tell him what, what happened today that I thought was really funny. I, you know, I, I think uh, God has a, uh, a, a joyful heart and, and, uh, and some, some of us treat our prayer life like a funeral. You know, it's just this really biz, dismal moment. And it's like, as Christians, as believers, we should have such hope and such joy because we have the promise of God in our lives. And so when we have the promise of God in our lives, we should be the most joyful people to hang around. Lost people, unsaved, unbelievers, people who do not know God should love to hang around you because you're full of hope, you're full of joy. You see the positive of what can happen when God is, is, is a possibility in a situation. And so your heart should be, always be full of joy and people be like, man, I wanna hang around you. I don't know what you have, but I need it. This is, this is the gospel and, and, and uh, this is a part of the gospel. Uh, I, I, we need to focus on uh, making prayer life more than just an emergency, but actually a way of life. Billy Graham, another quote, uh, says this, true prayer is a way of life, not just for use in cases of emergency. Make it a habit, and when need arises, you will be in practice. And so I wanna share today about seeking his face and being happy while doing it. Psalm 27, eight. The Lord says to David, you have said, seek my face, and my heart says to you, Lord, your face do I seek. And this is the call that goes out to all of us, to seek his face. 
Constantly, God is prompting you that you would actually turn towards him. Now, to seek someone's face is more than actually just having a communication line with them. It's actually having a personal relationship with them. When you seek God's face, when your heart finally comes to the resolve that, God, I need you and I wanna seek your face, you start reading his word and you start reading it with a passion. And you're like, Wow, like, you know, you read, you've read it a million times before, but maybe you've read it and, and you just now feel the presence of God in a scripture and it just opens up to you and you're like, whoa, God, you're so good. And when you're praying to him, you're actually having a face-to-face encounter with him. Now, oftentimes, I've said this before, that, you know, we project usually, it's just a natural habit that you project your personal uh, father-child uh, relationship to your heavenly father. So oftentimes, just because of how your, your earthly father treated you, you often approach God in that same way. It's just a, a natural thing that happens. And, and there is no father who's perfect, as great as your father might have been. And so, you know, I have to, the Holy Spirit has to highlight those things to me because I'm like, oh yeah, my father was always there. He was constant, but he never really got into deep conversations with me. So I would, when I was approaching God, I was always keeping things kind of like in the shallow end of the relationship. Like I knew God was there, just like I knew my father was always there, but I was projecting things that really aren't on my heavenly father that were on my earthly father. And so I want God to highlight that to you because we need to break those molds and realize that the God of the Bible is who you're praying to. That's your heavenly father. That's who wants to hear your voice. You know, experiencing God and knowing about him are two different things. And I want you to understand that you need both. You need to know about him by having a knowledge and reading his word, but you also need to experience him. And I've shared this uh, 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 example before, but Ruth and I, when we uh, started dating, she was living in Australia. We had met for a little bit, and then she went to live in Australia, where she was living. And uh, and I was uh, uh, communicating with her. We were doing a great job communicating through email. We were communicating over Skype. I don't even know if FaceTime existed back then. But uh, we, were, we were communicating over Skype, and, and it was wonderful, and we really actually enjoyed that time. For about a, a year and a half or two years, we were uh, apart, and, uh, and we really got to know each other without the physicality of a relationship getting in the way, and it was wonderful. And about six months into our relationship was the first time I was able to visit Ruth without, um, you know, in person. And, uh, and, and, and remember, now six months has gone by, and I've gotten to know her really well. I've gotten to know about her really well, and she's gotten to know about me really well, because, we, you know, when you're in love, you, you spend hours on the phone with each other and, you know, emails, even after you've just chatted and, and text messages. And so we felt like we had a good grasp on each other. And, um, and I remember finally landing in Australia after 24 hours of travel, and I go through those double doors, and, and you see all the people who are waiting for the people arriving, and I come out, and, and I remember seeing Ruth, and I was super excited. I mean, I couldn't wait to see her. She's the love of my life. I couldn't wait. And so I come down, and I'm like, hey, Ruth, how, how's it going? Is that okay? Are you? Do you like to hold hands and walk, or do you like to not? Nah, do, do you like people to open the door for you, or are you independent? I, you know, I, I, do, do you like to sit on the same side of the booth at the restaurant, or do you like to sit across from each other? Like, even though Ruth and I knew each other eternally so well, we didn't know how to walk it out in public yet. We didn't know each other physically yet. We, weren't, we didn't have the experience of the face-to-face encounter. 
And I just wanna submit to you that sometimes we're so involved in the word, and I love the word, and that should never go away, but that is one aspect of it. You also need to have an encounter with him. You also need to have a face-to-face encounter. You need to have that relationship. All right, let me try to pop up here again. It's always dangerous going down. So Psalm 27, you have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, Lord, your face I do seek. And so uh, I want us to have a culture of prayer in this church. I want us to have a culture of prayer in your personal life, a culture of prayer in your family. Husbands, I want you praying with your wives. I want you praying for your wives. I want you praying for your children. Wives, I want you to pray for your spouses. I want you to pray for your children. I, I, I want it to be a culture that's not just something we talk about, but something we actually get involved in doing, and then also having a culture of prayer for our actual church, our community, and our city, our state, our nation. This is what I want, and I feel that God wants on New Life City's culture, and that's why it's so important that we don't just talk about it as it's something that's passing or that's something that's peripheral, but this is central to your relationship with God. It's central to your relationship with your family. Once your prayer life starts to atrophy, once your prayer life starts to fade, everything else starts to fade and get in a, in a worse position. Sin becomes more prominent. Breaking, you know, fractions in your relationships become more prominent. Prayer is a method that God has a relationship for us that through the Holy Spirit, there's refining that that takes place because God communicates with you. Have you ever been praying and out of the blue, God brings up a, a circumstance that you haven't thought about for like five years? Has that ever happened to you where all of a sudden God's like, hey, remember Joe Smith from work? You're like, yeah, you need to apologize to him. No, I don't, God. I was right. You hurt Joe Smith. It's like, wow. I had, no, I had no idea that this was actually keeping me from even encountering God more. And so God has brought it to, to a highlight. And then you apologize to Joe Smith and you're like, there's breakthrough there. Every revival that I've ever studied always is preceded by prayer. I don't know of any church that is active in the moving of the Holy Spirit that does not have a prayer life or a culture of prayer. Uh, When I go to Brazil, oftentimes miracles are breaking out and there's just extended meetings and and people are getting so blessed in their families, in their homes. And I I ask them and I'm like, hey, what's going on? They're like, oh, we just got done a 21-day fasting and prayer time. Happens all the time, because what they do is they, they're so excited for what God's gonna do through uh, the visiting uh, speaker that they'll be praying for that, that moment. It's powerful. I was just in uh, Pennsylvania. We had a wonderful time. I was uh, attending a conference that was for pastors and leaders, and, um, and, and it was in Pennsylvania, uh, led by Dr. Randy Clark. I met a wonderful man uh, named Todd Smith, who is a pastor of a church in Dawsonville, Georgia. Have you ever heard of Dawsonville, Georgia? Okay, a few people have. Um, Dawsonville, Georgia is really not anywhere you would purposely go or accidentally go. I mean, it's like you would, you would, you would need a, 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 a you know, family or somewhere to, to go to Dawsonville, Georgia. They're known for a few things. Uh, they're known for um, um, moonshine. They have a moonshine-like museum or something. Uh, there's a famous NASCAR driver who has like a big garage out there. 
But other than that, they're not known for anything else. They are a county of, I believe, about 3,000. The city uh, that this pastor is a part of uh, is just hundreds of people. And um, they, they had a church just uh, about half our size, and they were uh, getting smaller every year. And the pastor, Pastor Todd Smith, um, was uh, praying, and, um, and the Lord brought up this scripture, I, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. And basically, he told Pastor Todd, the Lord said, you need to start praying again. You know, it's amazing. Even at this pastor's conference, um, one of the, actually a couple of the sessions, the focus, the topic, you know what it was about? Prayer. Encouraging pastors to get back to a lifestyle of prayer. Isn't that interesting? You know, a lot of times pastors are, you know, not a lot of times, all the time. Pastors are human. They're just like you. We're all the same. At the cross, everyone's equal. It's not like, and, and, and technically you guys are pastors. You pastor your family. You pastor your jobs. You pastor all these things. I'm just in a different position right now. But, but the reality is, is that pastors also need to be reminded of prayer. You know why? Because as a pastor, you can do a lot of things in your own strength. You can make things work in your own strength. You can make all the changes. You can, if you're a good organizational person, if you're a good business person, you could model a church after a business and, and, and have somewhat success. But the reality is, if you don't have an active prayer life, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside, you're spiritually atrophied on the inside. And so what we were encouraged to do was to get back into prayer. And I think this is the Lord, you know, uh, uh, telling the church in this moment that prayer needs to be a focus again. So anyway, back to this pastor, Pastor Todd in Dawsonville, Georgia. He, um, he, he said, okay, God, I want to seek your face. He was pretty burned out. Um, he was... Uh, uh, Resigning from the church, he, he uh, wrote up his resignation letter, brought it to the board of the church. Uh, the next day, he got a call from a, a random guy who he had never met before and said, hey, uh, Pastor Todd, I, I know you don't know me, but I got a dream last night, and I saw that, um, uh, God, that, um, that you were tired and about to give up, and God says to you, don't give up. And so he pulls his resignation letter back from uh, the board and, uh, and he decides that he and the church would pray and fast for 21 days. Now during the fasting and praying time, in the middle of it, he gets this quick picture of fire on water, like a baptismal pool that's full of water and fires on the top of it. He has no idea exactly what this picture is. You know, he kind of was like, well, I guess... There's going to be, you know, an outpouring of fire in water. I don't know. And so, uh, but he, he didn't think too much of it. Uh, and then after this 21-day fasting and praying, there was an outbreak of the Holy Spirit. Uh, people were getting saved, and they started baptizing people. And the meetings went day after day, and it's been going on for a few years now. And they've baptized in their church over 30,000 people. Pretty amazing. Um, their baptismal pool can hold up to eight people. They've also been invited to come to other churches, and God is doing the same thing. They've baptized uh, over 30,000, or around 20,000, I think, uh, at other churches where God is moving. And, uh, and, you know, a lot of this is challenging my mind because, you know, some of these people are already saved, but they're still struggling. And so I'm like, well, you know, that's not what baptism is for. 
Um, when you study church history, you realize that oftentimes when people got saved, they were immediately baptized. Now, I know the man on the cross next to Jesus did not have that opportunity, but that's like an outlier, okay? Um, so uh, they, were, they, they would get saved and baptized. Now, when you study early church history, not only would they baptize them, they'd also pray for deliverance and the filling of the Holy Spirit as soon as they got out of the water. Like it, all, it was all done in that moment. And, uh, and I, I think that sometimes we, we make salvation so simple in the sense that we're like, who here wants Jesus? Uh, and you've never had Jesus as your savior before. And we make everyone close their eyes and we have someone, we like coerce them like, just raise your hand. You just need to slip up your hand. No one's looking. Don't worry. Don't worry. No one's looking. And then they raise their hand like, oh, I see your hand. You can put it down now. It's like, that person will never be bold for Jesus if that's how they had to come into the kingdom. So all of a sudden, we, 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 we have everyone say the prayer instead of them just saying the prayer so that no one knows who exactly got saved. And then maybe we'll say, oh, and we would love for you to come up front so we, you can meet our pastor. And, and we would make it that simple and, and we don't actually go through a deliverance and, an, and a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and I just have this opinion that we have these premature babies that come into the kingdom but are still weak. They're still not able to, to they're still struggling with things in deliverance and, and still struggling with sanctification and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So anyway, God started moving. They started baptizing people one of the girls, uh, she, she just, these are some of the testimonies I got from, from him. Uh, she had cut herself. Uh, now, I think cutting is a spirit. Obviously, there's a lot of psychological complexities to it uh, and trauma that can be associated with it. This girl who had come to Dawsonville, she had cut herself. That was a picture from that morning. She heard about what was going on in the church at Dawsonville, Georgia. She decided to come because she couldn't get free on her own. They baptized her. Uh, they, they asked everyone about four questions. I can't remember all four, but it's basically very simple. What's your name? Uh, uh, you, uh, where are you from? What do you, why'd you come here? Why do you need to be baptized? And she said, I, I need to get free from cutting myself. And so they baptized her in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then she comes up. They notice that her scars are about half gone. 50% have, were gone. So the pastor said, dunk her again. <laughs> Dunked her again. This picture is at the service after the baptism. This next one. In the moment. Wow. Healing. <laughs> They've had so many healings. They document each one. And not only do they do that, they, because people sometimes don't know they're healed until they get checked out and verified by a doctor, but what they do is when they get the testimony, they find out the day and they time sync the face of the person with the testimony. So they have thousands of recorded testimonies. One of the uh, churches uh, in Georgia heard about what was going on in Dawsonville and said, could you come to our church? And so the pastor said, sure. He didn't even ask how big the church was. It's never a question for him. He just comes to it and uh, he found there was just like seven people there and he did the thing. I think three were baptized and they asked him to come back next month. Now of the seven people that were there, one of them was a prison warden for, the, uh, for that uh, little town, and the other one was a judge. 
And so when he came back, he finds that the church is full of lady prisoners. You can see right there. They decided to, that, that this was so good, they offered the prisoners if they wanted to come get baptized, if they wanted freedom. And now they offered food. So basically you're eating prison food nonstop and then a, a judge and a warden says, listen, we'll feed you uh, pizza and all this other free food if you wanna come. And so a lot of them just showed up for the food just to get out of that prison. And so they come. Um, I don't have pictures of them getting baptized, but God moved uh, miraculously there. They come back the next night, and there are the men. You'll see them in uh, green and white uh, prison outfits. Uh, not that one. Nope. Yep, that one. And so they're line, those men are lined up to get baptized and to get set free. And um, one of the when, when Pastor Tal was preaching at this church, he, uh, he's, he sees a guy who's in and out. He's in and out, he's a big dude, he's in and out, and uh, he doesn't wanna be there, but he's there for the food, you could tell. And, and Pastor Todd just points to him and says, the Lord wants to baptize you. And the guy's like, me? He's like, no, you, sir. So he's like, okay, so he, he, uh, he's coming forward. Now, Pastor Todd said, he said, look, if I knew who this guy really was, I would have not called him out like that. Because the guy is a murderer, attempted murderer. He's a, uh, a leader of, uh, he's, he's, he's a racist. He's a leader of a gang. Um, he has, he's controls from the prison, three counties that he's in charge of, that he would put hits out and drug deals. Uh, he organized all from inside his prison. Very, uh, very bad guy. Um, he's very racist. He was the leader of the Aryan uh, uh, gang in his uh, prison. Um, he said that he would enjoy um, just uh, shanking uh, people of different races and color just to watch them out because he had an encounter as a young boy with some other uh, races and he just in his heart became really bitter and has led this horrible life. And while he's approaching the altar, the Holy Spirit comes on him and he starts like shaking and he feels the power of God come upon him and he, um, they bring him to the baptismal pool. I think it's picture number three or four. I, I labeled them by, by, so there's one right before with his arms outstretched. They pray for him right there. He comes in, he's a big boy. He's got, he's got racist tattoos all over his arm and on his face, okay? When he comes out of the water, that next picture, he's holding his face and he's weeping and he's saying something really quietly, it's so precious, it's so precious. Pastor Todd said, what's so precious? When he was dunked under the water, he said he saw the face of Christ appear to him, broken, seek his face, changed him, came out a different man, laid down all racist beliefs, asked for forgiveness. I mean, he's still gonna serve his time. He goes back to the prison, he learns as much as he can, and he becomes the pastor. Go to the next, next one. He meets his best friend, uh, I, I called him Ernie last night, but I looked up, his name is Melroy. That's his best friend now. They had an interview, I watched the interview, where the, he, for, he forgives each other, he makes it into the paper. The next uh, picture, he brings more people back to the church. He's now a pastor in the prison. 
can't make this stuff up. This is the power of the gospel. There's the next one, and he starts baptizing his own prison mates. A lot of them also that were in the gang that had given it up. And we have this joy because we know what God can do. And, and you know, I, I love that testimony because he saw the face of Christ. Like he, he, he had this encounter with God. The pastor was preaching about God and the availability and the possibilities with God. But actually when he had the encounter, it changed his life. Psalm 27, 14 is the end of the Psalm that, that we started with and it says, David is in a cheerful mood, even though he doesn't have his answer yet, because oftentimes the Psalms, he'll, he'll have all these questions and then he'll state all the answers. He'll have all his doubts and then he'll state all his faith. And this, and this, there is no answer. He just, this is where he resolves to. He goes, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. Essentially, be happy because he's coming. Be happy because your answer's coming. Be, be encouraged, be, be um, uh, satisfied because God of the, the whole God who made all of us and the whole universe is listening to you and he's faithful. Um, we had a, uh, when Ruth and I first moved here to come to this church, we had this word that was given to us by one of the ladies of the church. And she, um, this is just her story. She was just saying how, you know, with all the transition that was going on, Pastor Allen, who's a wonderful pastor who planted this church, uh, had been here for 20 years, and you know they, not sure exactly what was going on. Not sure if they liked me and Ruth, and you know, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but they were just praying to God, like, "Hey, God, is this a time for us to maybe start looking for another church?" And actually, I've encouraged everyone to go where you're called. If you're not called to this church, if you don't feel called to this church, that's okay. Just be a part of a church, okay? And, um, and so she, uh, she's praying to the Lord and the Lord tells her, no, don't leave New Life City because you are gonna be a part of the remnant of what I'm gonna do in this city, in this church. And so I, I, I've always kind of held on to that word. I'm like, okay, God, you're gonna do something significant. And what's interesting about a remnant is there's, it's, it's not in the magnification of numbers that, that is how God moves. It's actually in small numbers because it gives him greater glory. So I was reading this, this book. I try to continually read and, and read the word, but also read about theology and different understandings and, uh, that are Christian. And, um, and I come across this section in this book. The book's called The Second Reformation. And uh, I wanna read a section to you. Is that all right? Now, if I was a production church, I wouldn't read a book to you. <laughs> but whatever, we're family. If you don't like it, you know, look up Facebook on your phone. I don't know. All right, just kidding. Okay, this, the power of the remnant is what it's called. Spiritual revolution that grows out of reformation and renewal of God's spirit is, is implemented by a remnant of God's people. When God gets ready to do something big, he chooses a remnant. God rarely does big things through the majority. As we can clearly see from the story of Gideon, God chose Gideon to lead his army 
against the Midianites, Amalekites, and the sons of the east. The call to arms went out to Israel and approximately 32,000 volunteers gathered to fight against an army of professional soldiers of 135,000. So they put out a call, hey, we're gonna fight, and 32,000 people show up to fight 135,000. Those are sm- those are not good odds. This is in Judges 7 and 8. You can read it for yourself. The two armies were close enough to engage in the Valley of Jezreel when God began to choose his remnant. God began his preparation by reducing the number of his army. If the war was won, Israel would say it was victorious because of their ability and numbers. And Gideon was informed by God then that the army was too large. 32,000 volunteers against 135 professional soldiers. Lord, you gotta be kidding. But Gideon sent God's word out to his volunteer army. And he said, any of you who are scared and don't wanna fight and want to go home, you can leave. And Gideon almost got trampled. 22,000 soldiers left for the home. But God still had not found his remnant. Those 10,000 remaining soldiers were still too many and would claim they were responsible for victory. The remnant test was applied once again. God said, watch the soldiers as they go down to drink. Those that lay their spears down at their sides and get down on all fours with their tails in the air, vulnerable, send home. And those that go down to the water, alert, because they know they are in battle zone, and who reach down with their cupped hands and drink with their spears in hand, keep. How many were left? 300. 300 against 135,000. This was God's remnant. We must come to understand the power of the remnant. God was looking for a group that would depend upon him, his might, his plan, without any question. God had to have committed an obedient remnant because this was going to be God's kind of battle. That night, God, through Gideon, told the soldiers about the, ba- the battle plan and the weapons they were to use. What were their weapons? A pitcher, a candle, and a trumpet. What would have happened if all the 31,700 soldiers who had gone home had been given those instructions? When Gideon told them they were going to fight a night action, there would have been murmuring. When he told them about the weapons God chosen for the battle, they would have certainly rebelled, broke ranks, and gone to the fight the enemy with conventional weapons, and they would have suffered defeat. What did the 300 do? They did not complain or rebel. They picked up those weapons and went to battle. Why? They were such a small number. By this time, it didn't matter what weapons they used. They kind of knew their destiny. 300 against 135,000. They couldn't defeat 135,000 with bazookas. A remnant characteristically is so small, it must fight with God's plan and God's weapons at God's time with God's power. God's remnant is committed and obedient to doing things God's way. God is calling out such a remnant today. You may be part of it. If you are, you will be required to exercise great faith and courage. Many will not respond to the call and measure up to the challenge. You will be a part of the remnant, not because of your spirituality or ability, but because of your commitment to the battle and your willingness to fight the battle with God's weapons, God's plan, and at God's time with God's numbers. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're a church of 300 You know, God's remnant is what God uses to give him glory. When God moves in this church, in this city, 
Paul's not going to get the glory. The worship team's not going to get the glory. God's going to get the glory. And we're going to see him move powerfully. And I'm excited about the direction that God's giving us. And I just want you to know that you're part of that remnant. But to be part of that remnant, there's going to be things that God's going to ask us to do that we will need such faith for that the only way to accomplish it is to seek his face. It's just to seek his face. Why don't you stand? Thank you for your time. A little longer than normal. Sorry, guys. I just want to pray for you. We'll just do a corporate blessing over you. Just hold out your hands. Close your eyes. Father, I just thank you for this remnant that you've provided. God, we know that we cannot do this in our own strength. We know that we can't bring a city into abundance in our own strength. We know that we can't break all these strongholds in our own strength. We need you, God. We need your tools, your weapons, your resources, not man's. Holy Spirit, you've given us. In you, Holy Spirit, we have everything that we need to accomplish your plan. Lord, would you give us obedient and willing hearts to follow you? God, I pray that there would be a, an outbreak in this church of a culture of prayer, that our hearts would burn for you, to have a lifestyle where we just are connected to you. And we pray for you. Lord, may we bring revival to our homes and our families. May leaders of our families, may we bring prayer, a culture of prayer life to them. And then it, may it bleed over into our church, our city, our state, our nation. Lord, I bless everyone here. I pray that you would give them a reminder of what we talked about today and that they would just be able to be joyful in your presence, that they would be able to seek your face and, and have a heart full of hope and joy as they come into your presence. And Lord, I pray that the relationship that we build with you would not be some way of just getting requests granted, just telling you our needs, our wants, our desires, but Lord, we would actually come to you for the joy of the union that we get to have with you and not, to get, not from what we can get from you. So Lord, I just pray that this would burn in our hearts, that the seeds that are planted over the span of our life up to now would start to produce some amazing fruit and a life of prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys. We're gonna have some prayer time. If our prayer partners could come up here and we'd love to pray with you if you need to, someone to stand with you to go through everything. And we bless you, we love you.